As we've looked through chapters 12 to 14 of 1 Corinthians, we've seen that Paul has been stressing the unity of the body of Christ amidst its diversity, amidst the various uh, gifts that it has. And he's also been bringing out that love should be the medium, the motivation for the use of spiritual gifts in a congregation. And we've also seen, and we need to say it again, because of the days in which we live, that there is an aspect of all of this that is not for today, in that the miraculous gifts, and I include prophesying in 1 Corinthians 14, as well as tongues and healings and the like, the miraculous gifts have indeed ceased. And we have biblical mandate for that in Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. We read, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. There was obviously something unique about the ministry of the incarnate Christ. Uh, That was God's climactic intervention in this world and therefore something unique about the apostolic witness to Christ. That was pointing to the very heart of God's redemption work. And so God bore witness to the apostles with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he bore witness to them by giving them these signs and wonders and by also giving them to the churches, the early churches that they planted. But with the close of the canon of scripture, with the cessation of their ministries as they went to heaven, there was therefore a change And now God works, we might say, through more natural means and and yet still, as he sanctifies them, natural gifts become spiritual gifts. And Romans chapter 12 reminds us of other kinds of gift. And yet having said all that, the word of God still has principles in these passages that have uh, that restricted historical Uh, application. There are principles that apply for today and we looked at the beginning of chapter 13 last week and we saw that Paul is teaching in these first few verses, verses 1 to 3, that love is essential and without love even the exercise of gifts, even while they're being exercised, uh, they are nothing. In fact, as we saw, Paul hints that they are worse than nothing, because he says, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Sounds, noises used in heathen worship, in the worship of Bacchus or Dionysius. Noises that are not spirit-filled, but devilish. The whole thing he says is to have, to have supernatural gifts, and yet no love is in fact to be like Satan. And we saw that the least grace is better assurance of heaven than the greatest gift, to quote John Owen the Puritan. So love is essential. And we see in verses 4 to 7 of 1 Corinthians 13 that love is powerful. And we can put it like this. Love on its own 
can do what the gifts on their own cannot do. On their own, on its own, love can achieve what the gifts, however remarkable the gifts, however incredible the miracles and the signs of the supernatural, on their own, they cannot do what love alone can do. And this is because of the character of love. And as we've read these verses, we are reminded of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Charities or love suffers long and is kind. It envies not. It vaunts not itself. It's not puffed up. It's patient. It's kind. And these are things that we have to test our own lives against and ask ourselves, do we have divine love? Do we have agape love in our hearts? No envy, no bragging, no pride, not self-important and arrogant, isn't puffed up. You think of these pictures of tropical frogs that puff up their throats like bellows to, to overawe anything that might want to predate on them. It's a picture of how we can be inflated with our own gifts and success and so on. Now, love isn't like that. And verse 5, it reminds us that love isn't rude and vulgar. It doesn't behave itself unseemly. And it's not easily provoked. It's not touchy. It's not exasperated. And it thinketh no evil. Now, that doesn't mean that love isn't uh, realistic and truthful. But it does mean that love in our hearts makes us not look at others in the worst possible light. How different this is, of course, from social comments and social media. Not taking pleasure in finding faults with others. Rejoicing not in iniquity, but rejoicing in the truth. So we're not looking for the dirt to throw at others, especially those who are better than us. We haven't got two little rabbit's ears when it comes to someone else's faults but two great spaniel ears when it comes to their virtues. This is so much unlike, isn't it, the chatter that goes on, whether on social media or whether just over the garden fence or whether in uh, someone's kitchen, the kind of gossip that we can engage in that is so unhelpful and so unloving. Thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Now, of course, if we just took this section of Scripture and nothing else, we could misread it. We have to always remember that Scripture must interpret Scripture. So when it talks about um, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, it doesn't mean to say that love is, is just totally and utterly blind to fault. But what it is saying is that it doesn't have an eye that misses out what grace can do in people's lives and what it is doing. So love is not gullible. It, does, it doesn't, as the proverb put it, stir up strifes, but it covers all sins. As far as possible, it has an eye on what grace can do. It's not a false charity which excuses people to come into a pulpit and deny the deity of Christ or deny the inspiration or inerrancy of scripture. That isn't love. 
That's actually a kind of hatred for people's souls. It's not like that, but it does nonetheless hope for the best and cover sin, even when it discovers it, if it can, properly. And so it endures all things. How different this is from the Corinthian perspective, as they are jealous of the possessors of the spiritual gifts like tongues and proud of the gift if they didn't have if they did have the gift there's not such a thing here as hurt feelings going around around with hurt feelings offended offense is something that we decide to to feel isn't it if we say we're offended it means we've decided to be offended because uh, that is a response for which we are responsible now they're not like that or they shouldn't be like that. Love isn't like that. And then we're therefore told that there's a character here about love which is powerful. And we have to ask ourselves individually and also corporately, do we have this kind of love? Is this the atmosphere and ethos of our fraternity and our ministry and our work together? We're not just a common interest society. We're not a club or a political party. There is diversity and yet there's unity through being brought into Christ by the Spirit. We're not a tongue-speaking organization as they would have felt some of them at Corinth at that time. We're not any kind of organization to promote one thing, one view of Scripture or one particular Uh, aspect of the Christian life we are a fellowship in God the Father a fellowship in God the Son and in God the Spirit and we could do through love what we could not do if we feel very very bereft in other areas perhaps we do feel bereft in other areas and we perhaps compare ourselves to other churches and we think of their numbers and their wealth and the richness of ability and and contact that they have well we need to remind ourselves that in these verses four to seven the character that is here being portrayed could give us power in our lives and witness one thinks of charles simeon the 18th century minister at holy trinity in cambridge who faced great opposition when he started there in 1782 The wardens of the church wouldn't open the pew gates. They wouldn't put any lighting in the building. People who heard him uh, in the evening time after dark, they had to just stand there in the dark. And this went on for six years. And then there was a famine around Cambridge. Uh, A great shortage of food through failed harvest and such. And... um, Simeon was one of the foremost in going around the villages helping to relieve the famine. That was in 1788. And it was that that melted the hearts of his persecutors and allowed him eventually to come into the church. They opened the pew gates. They were different toward him. What had happened was that love had conquered. Love is powerful. 
And then thirdly, this chapter teaches us that love is permanent. It's quite clear what he's saying in verses 8 to 11. The gifts, the, all the gifts will pass away. Some people think verse 10 is referring to the conclusion of the canon of Scripture. When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. But I don't think that's the case because... If you look on to verses 11 and 12, he is relating all this to seeing face to face. What he sees obscurely, as in a mirror, he then will see face to face. And surely that is talking about heaven. That is talking about that moment when faith will give way to sight and we shall see Christ as he is. And so I respectfully disagree with those who say that, uh, although I believe that t- tongues and prophecies and the like as gifts, I'm not saying God couldn't do extraordinary things when he wanted, but as perpetual gifts to the church ceased uh, at the apostolic time. But I don't think we can base it on this chapter. No, this is about heaven. And it's saying that when we get to heaven, we will not need any spiritual gift. We won't need prophecies, tongues. And what they would have been saying in these things, of course, is what largely is written in the New Testament. As they gave a prophecy, probably they might have heard a miracle or a parable that Christ has spoken, but the Holy Spirit would bring it supernaturally because it hadn't yet been put into Scripture. But when we get to heaven, we will not need any of the things that we now think of as gifts. We won't need preaching. We won't need teaching. We won't need the abilities and the skills that we have. Everything will pass, but we're told here that love will not pass. And he makes this point very strongly, does the apostle. He speaks about this life in verses 9 and 10 as being a time when things are unfulfilled. We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. This is speaking to us of fulfillment in heaven. Everything is partial. Everything is not completely realized here. Even faith itself uh, is going to give way to sights. And we have the earnest of the Spirit. If we are Christians, we have the earnest of the Spirit, the down payment that God has given us of what we will inherit, but we haven't yet inherited it. There will be fulfillment. And then in verse 11, he uses a second illustration. He says, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. He's talking here about maturity. The Corinthians were very puffed up at their spiritual maturity. They thought they had knowledge. They thought they were great. And he's just reminding them, actually, you're very immature. You're still in the realm of babies, as it were. Uh, You're still in the realm of, of people who haven't yet grown up. It's not your fault. This is where you are. But you haven't yet come into maturity. What you have is from God But it's not yet the full thing. And then in verse 12, another third illustration. For now we see through a glass 
darkly or in a riddle, I think the margin says, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. The third um, illustration is to do with obscurity. Everything is, there's some sight, but it's obscure. The, the glass, the mirror is not perfect. It's a first century AD mirror. But then face to face. So heaven will be full, mature, clear. It'll be what is called the beatific vision, the blessed vision of God in Christ. And in heaven, all these gifts, even as I say, preaching itself will not be needed because we'll see God and we'll see Christ. And as he says in verse 13, now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. As he's saying, there's a sense in which the, the graces of God all abide, and yet there's also a sense, verse 13, in which we can say that faith and hope, to some extent, are transformed, because that which we hope for has arrived. That which we walk by faith in anticipation of, we now see, we see God, we see Christ, we see uh, the blessedness that's in our Saviour. But love, he says, will not be transformed. Love remains. And what he's really saying to these Corinthians is this, that the best preparation for heaven is not your exercise of tongues or your exercise even of prophecy. The best preparation is the exercise of love because heaven is a world of love. Heaven is a world of love because in heaven you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the one God, eternal, immortal, the only wise God, that blessed Trinity. And the relationship within the Trinity is a relationship of love. And there's something, as we know from other scriptures, about love, that love begets love. So when we love God... When God loves us, we love him. And so as we see more of him to love, our love grows. And as our love grows, we see more of him to love. And you have a virtuous circle that will go on and on for eternity. It's a tremendous vision here that the apostle is giving. The greatest of these is love. But then he comes back to earth. In chapter 14, because he's back to the Corinthian problem. He's not just a visionary, he's a pastor. And he wants to deal with this problem of the way they have completely unbalanced view of tongues. And so he says, follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. Last week we saw that there are two words behind those verbs, two different words. Follow after means you do not take no for an answer, you pursue it with all your might. Desire means if God will, but maybe he doesn't. So if God will that I should have spiritual gifts to serve others in love, I pray for those abilities that God will give me. But if he doesn't, if he has other Uh, abilities he would give me or even if 
very few abilities because love can do, as we said, what the gifts cannot do. Follow earnestly after charity. And because love is the motivation, the best spiritual gift he's saying here is to prophesy. Now, again, we are thinking of prophecy as a spiritual gift. Uh, The brethren, many, many good people amongst the brethren, that they did make one mistake in their view of prophecy. They're not the only ones. The brethren movement, they saw it as just preaching. And that's why many of them became leaders in the charismatic movement in the 1960s and later. And quite a number of those leaders were brethren because they really have misunderstood the exegesis here. This is still as the spiritual gift. It's a direct word from God. But it doesn't need translation. So what are tongues? Well, it's quite clear that he's saying here tongues are a gift from God. He's not saying don't use them to the Corinthians, even as he says to the Thessalonians. Don't. He doesn't say don't use them. In fact, he says, I would that ye all spake with tongues. And he's happy to say that he speaks with tongues. What are tongues? They are a language. They're miraculous. They're real. They're not learned. They're given by God. But the point I'm sure you grasped in the reading which he is making here is this, that unless there is an interpretation, a translation, the person speaking in tongues is speaking directly to God. Speaking in the spirit. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth. But they don't understand. Even the tongues, uh, the person using the tongues doesn't understand what he is or she is saying. But my understanding is unfruitful. So direct from the spirit, direct from the heart to God. In a, a language that's not understood. And by the way, he says in verse 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And if that's true of the greater gift, it must be true of the lesser gift. The spirit of the person speaking in tongues is subject to that person. In other words, it's not an uncontrolled frenzy. So what do tongues do then? Well, they do edify, but they only edify the person who's using them. They edify because, as it says in verses 5 and 6, 13 and 14, if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is fruitful. And verse 16, else when thou shalt bless with the spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? So the sense in which the The person speaking in tongues knows that he's giving thanks. There is therefore a personal edification, but it's so limited in scope because the persons listening don't understand without an interpretation. And so Paul is quite clearly saying when you put us together, when you contrast the exercise of the tongues, the one person speaking to God in the spirit 
and the other person speaking to men with an interpretation or in a known language, there is no comparison. I thank my God I speak with tongues than ye, than ye, more than ye all, yet in the church I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. What is motivating this, as he's already made clear, is love. Because love aims for edification. And again, we see his use of metaphors, of pictures, to, to really stress the point. He was doing it in chapter 13. He does it here in chapter 14. Three illustrations between verses 7 and 11. The first illustration is musical. Imagine a band where everybody is blowing their own trumpet or pipe or playing their own harp or lute or whatever it is at their own pace in their own way and the whole thing is a cacophony. It's a shambles. Nobody can make out the tune. Verse 8, imagine a, a bugle call. But imagine that it's rather suppressed and distorted, perhaps through distance or the noise of battle. You can't make out what he says. Is he saying retreat? Is he saying attack? What is the bugle saying? Or imagine in verses 9 to 11 a conversation, but you just can't pick up the language. So you know that they're getting very excited about what they're speaking about. But it's like a barbarian. And the word barbarian there is onomatopoeic. It means that they, they, the actual word is baba. It's really a rather contemptuous phrase, contemptuous word that the Greeks used for people beyond the pale culturally. Their language was barbarous. It, it, they couldn't understand it, so it was baba. It was a sort of contemptuous phrase. And he says, be, it'll be like that. You just can't make it out. It's gobbledygook. That's perhaps a good a substitute word, gobbledygook. That's what it is, the use of tongues without an interpretation. That's what it is when you use any spiritual gift just for yourself, just for your own, own selfish gratification, perhaps to show it off. Edification is what must take place. And we can see there are two things that Paul, in concluding two things that Paul aims at for edification. The first is understanding. He doesn't like, as far as this goes, an unfruitful understanding. He wants them to have understanding. In other words, God's truth comes to our minds. Ah, oh, says someone, you're just one of these cerebral Christians. No, no. It can go from our minds to our hearts, to our wills, to our emotions, but it has to come through our minds. Otherwise, it's cultic. If it just works on the emotions or just works on the will, then it's, in some sense, cultic. But the Word of God works through our minds. So in Ephesians chapter 4, the apostle contrasts what we were like before we became Christians with what we're like after we've become Christians, speaking to the Ephesian church. As he says in verse 17, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, and that leads to all kinds of immoral behavior. As he says in verse 19, 
But in verse 22 and 23, that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You see, God has given us our minds and we're to love him with all our minds, with all our hearts, obviously, and emotions and all these things, but with all our minds. And he's saying edification has to take place and therefore love. Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. Grow up. That's what he's saying. Grow up as a Christian. Grow up as a church by aiming not at self-gratification, but aiming at love at that loving ministry within the church and that loving concern for people outside the church.